On April 1, 2015, Leah wright Rigur, Assistant Professor of Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, presented a seminar at the Ash Center on her new book titled The Loneliness of the Black Republican. Archer Davis, former U.S. Representative and current Republican candidate for mayor of Montgomery, Alabama, and Lisa McGurr, professor of history at Harvard University, also gave remarks. The seminar was moderated by Alex Kazar, Matthew W. Sterling, Jr., professor of history and social policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. This event was part of the Challenges to Democracy series celebrating the 10th anniversary of the Ash Center. Okay, it is still a great pleasure to, uh, <laughs> to, to, to welcome you uh, to this event, which uh, is built around a discussion of a book by Leah Wright Rigur, uh, my colleague who has come to the Kennedy School this year uh, from Wesleyan University where she taught for, I guess it was at six years before five. Five, five years. Um, and we considered it, frankly, something of a coup for the Kennedy School and for Harvard to have plucked her from Connecticut and brought her here. Um, and those of you who will be around here in subsequent years, she will be uh, teaching full-time starting next year. This year, this year we, her teaching duties were cut a little bit short by her need to have a baby. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, although her book and her baby appeared almost simultaneously, yeah. which I thought was, was also uh, quite remarkable. Um, and uh, we will have be two discussants of Leah's work. Leah will comment for about 20 minutes. I think I, I received a very detailed uh, timing schedule here, which I will try to make us adhere to. Um, and then we'll have two discussants. Arthur Davis, who is a, uh, a former congressman, political figure from the state of Alabama, a longtime Democrat who um, is now a Republican and is running for mayor of Montgomery, Alabama, but who had just informed me that contrary to the cheat sheet that I got to introduce him, the, the, the elections in Montgomery are nonpartisan, so he is not running as a Republican. <laughs> he is simply running as himself. Imagine that. <laughs> very, very strange thing to do. Um, and he'll be our first commentator. Our second commentator is my uh, colleague from the History Department and uh, longtime friend Lisa McGurr, who is a professor in the History Department and, a, and an expert on many things, um, including the politics of social movements um, and also including conservatism in the second half of the 20th century. Um, he's written a very fine book, which I can commend to you, called Suburban Warriors, which focuses on Orange County, California. Uh, so I let me, at this point, uh, get myself largely out of the way here and to uh, turn uh, the program over to Leah. You'll speak for about 20 minutes, and then we will, just, we will start a discussion. And eventually, you folks will be brought into the discussion. I also, I know there's one other reminder that I, that I was given, which was to tell you the formal session will end at 5.30, maybe 5.35, because we're starting a little bit late. Uh, 5.35, even 5.40, and then there will be a reception afterwards in this general area day four. Leah. Well, I have a mic. Oh, I've been okay. mic'd. <laughs> <laughs> so you can hang on or, or we can pass the mic around, but I, ha I have my own mic. Um, so first of all, thank you to all. Uh, thank you to you all for, for coming here today. Um, this is a great turnout. I I'm really happy to see all these faces. And it, it's actually been, it's been great to be back on campus. I've been 
kind of uh, off, off campus for a little bit of time. I escaped the really harsh winter, um, but I promise you I have a really good excuse that I will explain in a second. Um, before we get started, I did want to say thank you to the sponsors um, and the co-sponsors of this event. Uh, the first is the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation. And I really do want to thank um, Tim and Melissa, who I know are back there for, for organizing um, and approaching me months ago about this. So thank you very, very much and, and the whole team that helped them put this together. Um, I want to thank the Malcolm Weiner Center for Social Policy the Hunchard Center for African and African American Research, uh, the Harvard Journal of African American Policy, and the HKS Black Student Union. Um, and I'd also love to give a round of applause to my co-panelists, um, Arthur, Alex, and Lisa, who really have, you know, I, I couldn't have had a better panel. So thank you so much all for, for being here. Um, um, and as Alex said, this is my first year at the Kennedy School, and it's, it's been definitely um, a fun and exhilarating experience. I, I arrived just in time to teach a course on race, riot, and backlash. And this is, uh, my course started um, just as the Ferguson protests were breaking out. So you can imagine what that was like um, and coming in. And I had a great group of students. Um, and I'll be reteaching that class in the fall if anyone is interested. Um, I also had my second child in December. And then my book came out a few days later. So as, as you can imagine, it, it's been kind of a eventful year, to say the least. Um, but I'm here today to talk about my book. And I'm really excited. And it's, um, I was telling Lisa that it's, it's wonderful to have released this book and this project to the universe and to have let it go and for it to be out in the wide, wide world. Um, the book, The Loneliness of the Black Republican, Pragmatic Politics, and the Pursuit of Power. And it's an interesting, it's an interesting work. Um, it traces the relationship between African Americans and the Republican Party over nearly half a century. And it provides insights into the intersections of civil rights and American conservatism. And I think this is a book, I would like to say that it really encapsulates the, the thematic of this event and of the, um, the Ash Center's kind of year-long um, challenges to democracy theme. Um, here we have a movement of African Americans who are working for an alternative economic and civil rights movement within the framework of the GOP. Now this might seem a little oxymoronic, a little kind of hypocritical, um, or as I've described it to other people, shaky, right? So how does, how does this happen? Um, we know that African Americans, for example, are the most partisan of any racial group within the United States. And I'll just give you an example. More than 90% of African Americans voted for Barack Obama in the last political election in 2012. Um, at the same time, though, recent elections, uh, Mia Love, Tim Scott, Will Hurd, the rise of, of various figures, including I know everybody has heard of Ben Carson, who has been in the news a lot lately, um, has really pushed back at this idea of what partisanship means and what African Americans uh, do politically. Um, so it shows us that the reality is far more complex. Now, who are these people? Where do they come from? Um, most of these Black Party, uh, most of these African Americans, join the Republican Party or never left it out of a belief in what I might call traditional conservatism. So anti-communism, free market enterprise, a belief in capitalism, self-help, personal responsibility, limited government intervention, a respect for authority, history, and precedent, especially amongst Western institutions and traditions. Um, in a lot of ways, 
these are ideas and these are philosophies that are aligned with their white counterparts in the Republican Party. And like their white counterparts, black Republicans' traditional conservatism also reflects a dissatisfaction with democratic liberalism, specifically within the context of my book of the New Deal and the Great Society. But we can even see it today, right, with a dissatisfaction in the uh, liberalism of the, the modern Democratic Party and Barack Obama. Um, it's also important, I think, for you guys to know that this group of people believed, regardless of their ideological differences, that racial egalitarianism was in keeping with the Republican Party's principles. And let me repeat that because that's really important. Um, racial egalitarianism, racial equality, right, the idea that all races should be crea uh, treated equally, uh, was in keeping with the Republican Party's principles. And in times of crisis, the federal government, the institution of the Republican Party, had some, needed to play some kind of role in the lives of its nation's citizens. Now, what, de what degree uh, or what role, what demand um, uh, that role is, is, is really up to discussion. And I'm, I'm happy to uh, answer more during the Q&A on that. But I think they do this for a number of different reasons. Um, the strongest one is this idea of pragmatic politics, right? And it's so important that I can include it in the subtitle of the book. But pragmatic politics. Uh, they, see they view the two-party system as integral. They see two-party competition between Democrats and Republicans as really important and as the most efficient and practical way to achieve political and social power. They attempted to influence the direction of conservatism, not to destroy it, but rather to expand the boundaries of the ideology to include black needs and interests. So, and I, I want to point out too that I think this idea of expanding the boundaries of conservatism so that it's useful for African American needs and interests is something that is extremely relevant today. And I'm happy to get into that into Q&A and hopefully I think um, some of the other participants will, will comment on that in their remarks. Um, now, even though this group of individuals, this group of activists rejected say the New Deal, the Great Society and things like that, and even though they disparaged social welfare as handouts, they nevertheless insisted that the Republican Party had to offer something to address racial inequality. Um, and it had to be done in a, vial, a viable and empathetic way. Over the course of 40 years, they would repeat a variation of this mantra over and over and over again. I mean, it's ad nauseum. Um, this was an approach that was far from perfect. It had elements of classism, elitism, sexism, but it was a strategy that still recognized the significance of black voters and tried to uh, address it in a distinctly Republican way. Now, many of these black Republicans advocated a kind of rhetorical color blindness. And we really see this uh, exemplified in Edward Brooks' um, uh, political performance. And it, I dub it something um, called non-Negro politics, meaning that he speaks in a way that is, um, uh, appears to be colorblind, but it's balanced with race-conscious appeals to African Americans. Um, we also see a strain of right-wing uh, black conservatism thriving in organizations on the ground during this period, including groups like the National Black Silent Majority Committee and the Lincoln Institute for Research and Education. And in fact, the Lincoln Institute for Research and Education is still very much active 
and influential in modern politics. Uh, just to give you guys an example, they kickstarted the career of Clarence Thomas, who I think we all know and perhaps maybe don't love. Um, this was a context that gave rise not only to modern bl uh, liberal black republicanism, but also black neoconservatism. Now, a couple other points that I want to emphasize just before I turn it over to the other panelists. Uh, since 1936, uh, black Republicans <coughs> have complained of, of being isolated because of their small numbers. Um, and while they've developed strategies to address that isolation, all too often their suggestions, often in the form of policy, were either ignored or neglected. At the same time, there's an irony to this loneliness. At various points over the course of 44 years, the Republican Party strategically instituted some of these policies and programs. Um, they institute several ideas, several initiatives, acting not only on black conservatives' proposals, but also those of moderate and liberal black Republicans. And just to give you an example, the Philadelphia Plan and modern affirmative action comes out of a black Republican moment during the 1960s and 1970s. We also see, just in keeping in theme with the challenges to democracy, we also see a lot of um, um, influence in terms of the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the 1965 Voting Rights Act and also the 1968 Civil Rights Act. Um, their thoughts and approaches sometimes garnered support from outside of the Republican Party. We, see, we especially see this amongst the black press. Uh, black Democrats also support black Republican ideas and black constituents who, while they often mocked black Republicans, were often quick to accept some of these uh, policies and programs. Um, the people who were most successful were those like Edward Brooke, who struck a balance between colorblind outlooks and race-conscious um, perspectives. And they often found widespread bipartisan support amongst diverse uh, audiences that went beyond African-American voters. And we see many of these philosophies pop up in modern-day politics. This is really readily appar uh, uh, apparent among contemporary back Republican politics. Um, but a less obvious comparison is the way in which their ideas, black Republicans' ideas and policies, actually influence black neoliberalism. Um, and so we see this articulated by a number of prominent figures. Cory Booker, Deval Patrick, uh, even Barack Obama incorporate many of these ideas that I talk about in the book. So I just want to um, sum up my, some of my remarks by talking about the dilemmas. Right? So I've told you all of this background and kind of the crux of the argument of the book. Um, even as African Americans have become more conservative, and they are becoming more conservative, uh, in fact, uh, conservative African Americans make up about a third of the black community today, um, their ideological orientation has not translated into support for the Republican Party. It has not translated into a Republican affiliation. And I just want to share some um, data with you. Between 1984 and 2012, Black identification with the GOP reached no higher than 15%. Similarly, black support for a Republican presidential candidate peaked at 12% during this period. So in short, although their moral, religious, and economic conservatism may align with the GOP, African Americans still experience a political dissonance when it comes to the Republican Party. So in short, their political conservatism is not <coughs> translating into votes for the Republican Party. I think that's a huge dilemma, right? especially as we talk about 
um, two-party competition, the idea of African Americans not having any permanent friends, no permanent enemies, only permanent interests. How do we get things done? Right? So how do we get both parties to take us seriously? Um, now there's a reason for this disconnect. African Americans exhibit what I call an everyday form of conservatism, one that doesn't necessarily translate into ballot box power. Um, it's apolitical in some respects, at least on a national level, although on a local level it may be very different. Uh, poor and working class African Americans continue to see the Republican Party as the party of the wealthy, um, and the Democratic Party as the party of the common man. And I think most relevant here, black people see Republicans as racially conservative. They see the party's colorblindness language and language of individualism as coded anti-black antagonisms. And again, this has significant question, uh, implications given contemporary policy and political protests that are going on throughout the country. One example we might talk about is the prison industrial complex. There was a recent uh, conference, I think last week, that had an uh, enormous uh, bipartisan support. Republicans and Democrats came together to really talk about these issues and how they affect uh, African American lives, black lives. So the lingering questions that I have, and I, and I pose this in the book, are black voters uh, forever lost to the Republican Bar Party? Can the GOP honestly woo black voters? And can the ideology of the Republican Party be reconciled with the goal of broadening its appeal across racial lines? So again, I think these are serious questions that I'm happy to discuss, and I'm sure the other panelists would be happy to chime in um, during the Q&A. Um, and so for that, I'm, I'm just going to turn it over to the rest of the panelists. Good evening. You know, I, <clears throat> I, I think I'm okay. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I apologize for standing up, but I, I left politics and made the mistake of getting back into it. So since I've become a political candidate again, I've picked up all these old habits I had tossed aside. One of them is if there are more than five people in the room, I must stand up now. <laughs> uh, I will try to cure myself of that during the Q&A, but bear with me for a few minutes. Uh, let me first of all compliment you, Professor Rigour, on uh, having this many people come out at four o'clock on what passes for a spring day in Cambridge, Massachusetts <laughs> right now. Uh, I spent a four months at the Institute of Politics, the Resident Fellows Program a few years ago, and we had our 8.3 people at every event. So, so this is a thousand people by my standards. You know, let me, <clears throat> and I'm gonna, you know, follow the professor's lead and, and uh, be even briefer than she was, but I wanna make two big points. Here's the first one. Uh, this is a really good, rigorous book. And she can't say that without sounding self-serving. I can say it. It's a really good, rigorous book. It's a good read. Uh, there's a lot of good information. It's a very insightful book. One of the really interesting things that she does is to bring to life a lot of people whose names have been lost to history, but who mattered in their time. Uh, and I'm someone who loves politics. I'm, I'm, <clears throat> I'm a self-styled political junkie, and then I found a lot of things in there I did not know. Uh, but as, as I read her work, something occurred to me. A lot of the people who end up shaping American history and their time and their space, if they never end up holding an office, if they never end up acquiring celebrity in some form or fashion, 
their names are often lost to memory. So I thought it was an incredible treat that she reminded me of people like Frederick Morrow, someone whose name you probably do not know, but who was the first African-American to be a senior White House staffer and who actually gave Richard Nixon the advice that would have beaten Jack Kennedy in 1960 if we'd followed it. Uh, if you look at the cover of her book, there's a lady on the cover of the book who virtually nobody in this room had probably seen or heard of unless you frequent certain circles in Chicago. The lady in the book is Jewel LaFontaine. She happens to be the mother of John Rogers, a very smart businessman who's Barack Obama's best friend. And she happens to also be, as far as we know, to this moment, the only African-American woman to ever be seriously considered for a seat on the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, that's criminal if that's the case, given how many talented African-American jurists we've had. Uh, but it's remarkable that she's the only one who's ever actually gotten that consideration. So I love that part of her book. But all these people reminded me of something. They all chose their path because they had two firm beliefs about the United States of America. The first firm belief that they had is that if a party purports to be a truly national party, it must have something to say to all Americans. Let me say that again because that continues to be something the Republican Party must understand if it's to win elections again. To be a truly national party, you must speak not to the America that used to exist, not to the America that you wish existed, but to the America that we have. All the people in her book firmly believe that. The second thing that they firmly believed is that it's good for American politics and good for American democracy if both parties are having a vibrant debate about the conditions of all people. So I often issue the challenge to conservatives, because in case you haven't figured it out, the Republican Party is a pretty conservative party. Uh, I like to issue this challenge to all conservatives. If your philosophy does not touch on the aspirations of every American citizen, you don't truly have a philosophy. A philosophy properly understood says, if you apply our values and our precepts and our way of looking at the world, we can build a country that's the one that we want to build. If that's not your kind of conservatism or that's not your kind of philosophy, you're really selling yourself short. Um, now, on a very basic salesmanship level, politics is about convincing people that you offer something to them and their community. I often say to Republicans, uh, if the only time or if the first time you have become articulate on the cause of African-American children in struggling schools is when you're trying to pass a voucher bill, if you have not discussed the plight of poor African-American children until you need two African-American senators to join your coalition, don't expect to move the black community. I often say to Republicans, if the only time you discuss the plight of low-wage black men and women is when you're trying to juxtapose them against low-wage Latino men and women to try to block an immigration bill, don't expect to move very many African-Americans. Uh, 
ultimately, the Republican Party has a very special mission and challenge in front of it, and that's what I want to close with. If it wants to be serious about winning again, it's got to learn to talk to all people. Because there are two routes to win the presidency going forward in this country that we have today. You can get 65% of white men, or white people, rather, and that's hard to do because white people are not monolithic, so to get 65% of white people is one heck of a political challenge. Or you can talk to more black and Latino people. In terms of math and strategy, I think the second course is the easier one. But second and last, if you want to not simply win power again, but if you want to deserve power again, it's vitally important that conservatism be a cause and a movement which doesn't simply live inside gated walls, which doesn't simply speak to people who've made it, which doesn't simply speak to people who are successful, but that talks about the very specific challenges that African Americans face today. And we know those challenges, ladies and gentlemen. Every African-American professional in this country encounters them as they try to shatter glass ceilings in every profession in America. We know these challenges of 18-year-old black men and young women graduating high school and not being able to read front page of a newspaper with comprehension. We know the challenge of 13-year-old African-Americans being advanced to the ninth grade and the eighth grade who cannot write and compose sentences. We know the challenge of African-Americans walking about their neighborhoods, minding their own business, and encountering a visceral fear when they see a police vehicle. We know we're a country that faces enormous challenges, and many of those challenges in American life are still rooted in race and skin color. So if the Republican Party is to not simply win power, but to deserve power, has to understand that, and has to advance ideas that speak to those realities of American life. So I am going to follow up and keep uh, my comments relatively brief, I hope, but I just, uh, and, and pull them in somewhat of a different direction, and I guess uh, they're quite more linked to some of the questions that were raised uh, for me in the book itself, which you all haven't read, so <laughs> I'm, I'm going to talk about them in ways I hope that you'll, you'll uh, understand. Uh, first, let me just start off by saying that um, this is in agreement with Arthur David's uh, remark that this is, uh, uh, Leah has not touted her own horn. Well, now she said it's an interesting book. But it's, it's much, much more than that. Um, it is a really fantastic, uh, innovative, uh, original contribution to our understanding of uh, race, civil rights, and political history in the 20th century. Um, it is a terrific contribution to our understanding of the Republican Party. Uh, I, you know, it's, I, it was a great read, that's true, but analytically it's deeply nuanced, it's richly researched. We meet an enormously diverse cast of characters from uh, around 28, really 36, and then forward till about 1980. Um, 
I enjoyed it tremendously. And I'm somebody who's worked a lot in this area. So I deeply appreciated both, you know, the sort of entry into lots of different archival materials all across the country, uh, lots of different people uh, and what that involved, um, and enlivening, enriching our understanding of the Republican Party. So to keep it very, you know, to sort of just in a synopsis, our traditional understanding is that from 36, African Americans, as Nancy Weiss has told us, said farewell to the party of Lincoln, right? It's sort of the general gist, said farewell to the party of Lincoln, um, and uh, that realignment has really caused uh, a, a general neglect of the continued vibrant internal dynamics and continued struggle of African Americans within the Republican Party to keep pushing the party in a direction of uh, doing justice to the kind of traditions of the party as the party of Lincoln and to appeal to African Americans and win back African Americans from the Democratic Party. And we learn a lot about people from Ralph Bunch to Jackie Robinson to a whole set of organizations and their key role in really pressing the party to be, to, to sort of, again, sort of do justice for African Americans. And it's not a surprise in some ways because at the mo in that early years, up till 64 or so, obviously the party, the Democratic Party, was highly questionable as a party of interest to African Americans since it was largely linked to white supremacy in the South. Um, and so there was this kind of viable effort to, we need the two-party system made a lot of sense. Uh, so those struggles and the vibrancy of the appeal of the Republican Party to African Americans is something she really drives home. So about, you had about one-third of voters continuing African Americans voting for the Republican Party and in local and state elections often higher, and that's in presidential elections and uh, in midterm elections, about one-third. So African Americans were not really lost to the Republican Party, even though there was a majority turn and realignment in 36. Um, so Leah traces the history up those struggles from 36 to 80, and there's a kind of, she does so in a kind of continuous, uh, there's a continuous strand. Different chapters kind of break down different moments, but there is a way in which there's a level of continuity in these struggles. And I guess one of my, one of the core questions that I have is the importance of the 64 as a kind of key breaking point. And a key shift in identity for the Republican Party and the meaning of that fundamental shift for this question of whether or not African Americans have been irrevocably lost to the Republican Party. Because what seems to be clear is that uh, the openness that in that early moment shifts dramatically after 64, and there's still struggles, but it's after that when you get 8%, 12%, 13% in presidential elections, and finally with Reagan, 14%, I think it is, but that's the max, even with all these efforts to appeal to African Americans, African Americans remain pretty much bounded to the Democratic Party. Um, so what I want to ask her are a couple things. One is to unpack the idea of what she means when she talks about black conservatism, and particularly if she is collapsing black republicanism with black conservatism. Because many of the folks that she talks about, like Brooks, who is a senator from Massachusetts, a really fascinating character, doesn't seem to me to embrace what I would think of as a rubric of kind of fit the, the sort of de definition of conservatism, even as you've outlined it here, because he embraces policies that are really much more moderate and closer to the Demo Democratic Party, full employment, uh, fair housing, and some other issues that we think of as closer, close, more closely aligned to the Democratic Party. Uh, so the question, unpack the idea of conservatism, and in particularly, 
everyday conservatism for us, because I really want to know more about that notion of everyday conservatism within the black community. One third of African-Americans identify as conservative. What does that mean, though? Does that mean they are a viable sort of uh, audience waiting for the hook with the right uh, gesture uh, repackaging by the Republican Party? Or is there is it an everyday conservatism that is one that may be moral and religious, but that actually segues well with redistributionary policies, with far more structural solutions that a lot of the elite African-American members of the Republican Party are not willing to embrace? And so I guess the question is then, again, about um, this notion of whether African-Americans are irrevocably lost, unpacking that idea of everyday conservatism may help us kind of get to that question. Um, and the last thing I want to raise before we open it up is this question about, it, Leah in a way ends on this note, it's not optimistic, but it's an open possibility, right? So there's 19, we get to 1980 and we get, you know, this sort of effort of uh, af groups of African-Americans within the Republican Party, including African-American-owned consulting firms to bring in a wider appeal. There's a strong sense of the Republicans that they must, they need to. They're very aware that without that appeal, they're going to lose close elections to the Democrats. So it's Bill Brock, I think, in 76, who loses to a Democratic Party opponent and says to the Republican Party, grow up. If we do not, if we do not appeal to African-Americans, we're going to be losing these close elections. And the solution is to try to reach out reach out more broadly, address issues of African-Americans in a Republican format, but nonetheless address economic issues, address some of the struggles of African-Americans. The reality is it's largely remains at 14%, and it's not terribly successful. There is an effort integration, as she puts it, integration of the Republican Party. But then we get post-80, if we, if we move beyond that optimistic moment, potentially optimistic, what happens after 1980 is that, you know, you have this real slide toward a far more ideological divi divided party, which and the rise of this, you mentioned the prison industrial complex, tough on drugs, tough, tough on crime policies that are very much Republican policies and are deeply, deeply detrimental to the masses of African-Americans that disproportionately hit poor, impoverished African-Americans. So I guess, to the, rather than spending a lot of time talking, just to say the last kind of question that I have, which I feel can be more deeply addressed, is the question of class. How, to what extent does class matter here in asking the question of whether African-Americans are irrevocably lost to the Republican Party particularly the Republican Party since 1964, since its social base is so heavily reliant upon uh, conservative uh, white uh, Southerners. So I'm just going to stop there. Um, and uh, I can, whatever I didn't kind of clarify, I will in the question and answer, but I want to open it up to Leah and to you all to participate. So I think that what, I, what I'm going to do, especially since we are running on time, um, is to give Leah a chance to, for a couple of minutes to respond, and then I will open it up to, to all of you. So, yeah, well, thank again, thank you, and, and thank you guys for your for your comments. And I'll I'll just be brief because I really do want to get a chance to for people to ask questions or to make comments, um, uh, to respond to to some of Lisa's points. Um, the first thing is the 1980 to present day book is what's on the the boiler point next um, so that that's what's coming up next but that's your second project? that's the second project <laughs> so um, but I, I think and I, I mentioned this I, I tried to wrestle with this a little bit in the book where um, 
class is a huge issue. And it's, it's one of these points that um, black Republicans during this period largely overlook. So they overestimate this idea of the black mid, the expansion of the black middle class. Right? So the black middle class will be expanded, and then they are they'll be more inclined to join the Republican Party. Um, they will also, you know, trickle down. Their good fortune will trickle down. I mean, affirmative action is largely pitched around these points. Right? Black capitalism. Um, during the 1960s and 70s is pitched around this idea that if we can build up the black middle class and the black upper class, we can then help the black poor and working class. And I think they, they overestimated the significance of the black middle class and put too much attention there. And in fact, Clarence Towns, one of these figures that I talk about in, this bu in the book, who's, who's really been written out of the history, writes in, in, a, a, very, um, in a widespread Republican report he says, we have ignored the black, poor, and working class. We just haven't targeted them in our art re outreach efforts. Our policies haven't addressed this. And just looking at the math, we can't expect to get black voters if we don't have policies in place that are going to target these groups. So I do think this is a huge problem when we think about how these things operate. And really, I mean, when you actually start breaking down national figures, by class amongst African Americans, by class, you do see that the, the heavy support among black and working class goes to the Democratic Party. And that there, is, there are ties in there that the Republican Party just has not been able to break. Um, it's much more fluid once you get to the middle class and then really the extremely wealthy. Um, so I, I do think that is a, that's a huge um, problem. Um, the other thing that I, I wanted to, uh, to speak to is this idea of unpacking black conservatism. And I know that's a huge, huge question, um, but it's one that has really plagued me since I, I started the project. Um, and one of the things that I, I've wrestled with is not only defining people within the rubric of conservatism, but defining conservatism itself. Because it's a concept that changes dramatically over a 50, 60, 70 year period, and it's one that's still changing right now. So I think for, Lisa, I know you mentioned Ed Brooke, for example, when he starts out, he self-identifies as conservatism. And ultimately what he sees happening is that conservatism begins to escape him. It starts running away from him. And so by 1970, even as he's still defining himself as conservative, He's not conservative in the way that we would define conservative today. And I do think that's a real problem um, as we think about policies and procedures um, going forward. Right? So there's this part in the book where I write about how African, African, as African Americans are becoming more and more conservative, the conservative of the Republican Party is moving further to the right of them. So they're not even conservative enough for their own party but they're still too conservative for the Democratic Party. So it leaves them in this very weird bind. And we really see this play out in the uh, 1970s, right, where they say, we don't have a place to go. We, don't, we can't jump ship and go to the Democratic Party, but we don't really know where we exist in our own party. And so I think there's, there's something here about reshaping and redefining black conservatism. And there's definitely a project there <laughs> to be had and, and work to be had. Um, the other point about this, this idea of everyday black conservatism, 
so I think there, there's a very long tradition of black conservatism in African-American communities, right? This idea of bootstrapping and pulling yourself up, you know, pulling yourself up by your bootstrap. Um, it has roots in the black church that go back to, you know, we can say it goes back to emancipation um, or even before then, right? If you want to talk about somebody like Jupiter Hammond. Um, but it's a conservatism that, oper that tends to operate outside of political forums. And so um, one way of thinking about this is that African-Americans who self-identify as conservative, conservative oftentimes can compartmentalize their conservatism. So they may say things like, I'm pro-life. I, you know, I support the death penalty. I believe in very harsh prison sentencing, et cetera, et cetera. When it, come t when it comes time to pull the lever for a, for a candidate, especially on the national level, they still say, I find my allegiance with the Democratic Party. And that's really one of the things that, that the Republican Party has really struggled to overcome, right? So why is it that we can look at them and say that their policy preferences line up with so many of ours, even if they don't check every single box, but why is that not translating? And I think one of the things that the party has overlooked is this idea of what does, what does it mean to be racially liberal. So on ideas of race-related policies. And I think just by even looking at the data, looking at polls, looking at surveys, going up and talking to black people in black churches, you can then begin to see how these things, how these social policies don't necessarily influence African Americans and their voting behavior. Um, the other point that I do want to mention is that um, there's something to be said about black people who abstain from voting, right? Because they feel like neither party has their interests at heart. And so I think there's a story to be told there. What kind of, what kind of protest does it mean? Not only when you see black people who self-identify as liberal or radical rejecting the vote and rejecting elections, but also rejecting a political party that they may fall in line with ideologically, right? And saying, I'm just not going to vote altogether. So I'll stop there, and I think we can maybe open it up for Q and A. I was going to slip on a couple of points. <laughs> Let me, uh, no. right, and I'll even try to do it sitting down uh, if I can. Uh, let me speak to the class issue for one second. One challenge that I think Republicans and conservatives have in general, and I think you can test this for yourself, uh, pick any Republican or any conservative you know, and even though we're at Harvard, you must know some. Uh, perhaps some of you may be. Uh, what do many conservatives tend to have in common? They tend to have a very rosy notion of capitalism, of markets, and the wonders of capitalism and of markets. If you ask most conservatives, what is the basis of your conservatism? Why did you choose the right box versus the left box? They will invariably tell you because of a faith in markets. Well, here's the challenge. I have encountered very, very few African Americans in my life who genuinely believe that the market is a perfect discrimination-free vehicle for human advancement. So anyone who goes to the African American community and says, vote for me if you want to free up the market and liberate the market to do its will, you're making that case to a group of people who say, well, the market doing what it's will meant redlining in my community a few years ago. Uh, 
This is a real challenge for conservatives. By the way, not just for African Americans. Uh, I would submit that 80% of the challenges that Republicans have with African Americans, Republicans also have with white working class Democrats. Because let's not miss the mystery ingredient that most people forget in 2012. The reason that Barack Obama is serving a second term instead of Mitt Romney serving a first term is this. In Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Florida, Mitt Romney underperformed with white working class voters. In the states that Mitt Romney won, he won white working class voters. In the states that Barack Obama won that produced the Electoral College majority, he got 40 to 41 percent, peaking at a high of 47 percent in Wisconsin of white working class individuals. The same challenge Romney had with blacks, he had with white working class. Second big point about the nature of conservatism, this is another challenge Republicans have today. For a very long time, and much of the time that Leah writes about in her book, conservatism was skepticism toward government. We've had this migration since 2009 toward a conservatism that is not merely skeptical of government, but views it as a downright toxic, subversive, evil sort of enterprise. And by the way, that is why all these conspiracy theories proliferate in certain circles on the right. That's why the death chambers and all that stuff has a viability. If you deeply disbelieve that government is a good thing, you pretty much will believe any bad thing about it, right? So this new strand of conservatism has a worldview that says over and over again, we don't trust government. We want to whittle it to the ground. We wish we didn't have any of it. Uh, the one person who's actually announced for president, Ted Cruz, what's his big plank uh, beyond Obamacare for me but not you? His uh, second big plank is get rid of the IRS. Well, that resonates, maybe not the first part, but the second part resonates with the Republican base because it taps into the anti-government stream that's there. Well, here's the reality. Very few African Americans view government as a toxic force. I will give you a basic reality. The largest number of African Americans in any workforce in America is the percentage found among state and federal workers. That's just the reality. So I think that conservatives have to figure out a way to talk about government without viewing it as being toxic and a way to talk about what government does without seeming to have a very lethal view toward government workers. Final point that I would make is ultimately, I think there's one thing you've got to understand about African Americans. There is a conservative strain on social issues that sits side by side a very egalitarian strain on economic issues. Any of you African Americans in the room who have been to a black church in the last 10 years have heard the 10 minutes of the sermon that touches on gay marriage and abortion that will rapidly be followed by five minutes of they had never opposed a president the way they're opposing this one. They're trying to take our health care from us. And the same preacher is saying all of that with equal vitality.
Now, there's no politician in American life who carries around that set of positions, because that doesn't really fit in either box, right? Sort of left, right, stick it all together. That happens to be a common melding of views in the African-American evangelical world. A strident social conservatism that many of you would not like mixed with a very strident economic populism that some of you might like. Uh, that is a challenge, by the way, for the Democratic Party, perhaps, but it's also a challenge for the Republican Party. It's a challenge for really, <clears throat> in my opinion, the whole Democratic dialogue in American politics right now. What Leah said about, about and, uh, and Lisa's point about the shift, um, if we think about health care policy and all the, cur the antagonism currently to uh, the Affordable Care Act, we should remember that Richard Nixon supported a national health care program in the early 1970s that was substantially more inclusive and expansive than the Affordable Care Act. Right? Teddy Kennedy, before he died, said one of his regrets, Teddy was pushing for something yet more, and yet more expansive. One of his regrets was that he did not accept the offer that Nixon made, which would have, for, for a health care program that would have covered everyone. And that, you know, that's, Nixon will be considered a left-wing heretic uh, you know, in, in, uh, in, in parts of the current Republican Party. Disfranchisement. That's the one issue. The other solution to this issue of the black vote within the Republican Party has become to turn toward these efforts, right, voting identification laws. So there is another solution aside from appealing, which has been to essentially neutralize or remove the black vote. And I think we shouldn't forget that either. Okay, now the floor really is open. <laughs> um, so if you have a question, raise your hands. We're, we're recording, so you'll be handed a microphone. Hi, my name is Eugene Scott. I'm a student at uh, Kennedy. Um, I'm a career student, and I'm uh, the senior editor for the uh, Harvard Journal on Public uh, African American Policy. I think a really important question uh, that a lot of blacks in politics would love to hear from Republicans regarding their interest in increasing black votes is why do you want our vote? What is the motivation behind it? And if we could get to hear the answer and the heart behind it opposed to, and if it's something more rich than we just want to win, um, then maybe, maybe things could be a bit more convincing. But the heart behind why you want the vote um, it's very important, I found, in, in my coverage of political issues. Yeah, you know, let me, and, and I'm going to resort to this thing as it seems like it's a little bit better than this thing. Uh, let me go back to the point that I made earlier. Republicans have a tendency to show up in the black community for very specific purposes. So for those who missed the point earlier, uh, you know, we've all sort of seen this, right? Uh, a lot of Republicans are very engaged in pushing for education reforms, charters, vouchers, that kind of thing. And typically the argument that's advanced in the Republican Party is this is an indication that we're really concerned about helping poor black kids. And the problem is if you're really concerned about helping poor black kids, the first time you engage their plight will not be when you're trying to give them a voucher. If the first time you seem passionate about poor black kids is when you're trying to give them a voucher, you're going to come across as a Johnny-come-lately. I go back to the immigration point because I think it's a very important one to understand. Uh, we often hear the argument advance that, well, 
one more reason to question immigration reform is that it will damage African-American low-wage workers and it will inject African-American low-wage workers into a competition with these low-wage Latino workers who will now be able to be hired without consequence. Well, if you're really serious about engaging low-wage workers, then why oppose the minimum wage just rightly? You know, why be indifferent to any manner of other legislative proposals that might help those people? So I'm not saying the Republican Party has to turn into a carbon of the Democratic Party that would defeat the purpose. But I do think Republicans have to strive to be a lot more thoughtful about ways they can impact these communities because to your point, I do think there's a very real sensitivity in the African American community that you guys don't really want our vote, you want 20% of our vote. Now imagine a relationship where you said to someone, I'm not interested in you, but I want 20% of you. Uh, that, that doesn't work too well in human affairs, uh, that, but that kind of seems to be the political strategy. People get when there's a play to get a certain percentage, but not to really move a large number of people. And here's the reality in politics. If you aim for 20, you normally get seven and a half. Whatever you aim for in politics, you normally get a fraction of that. So if your strategy is let me get just enough black votes to offset other parts of the electorate, you're, as a pure practical matter, you're not going to get there by aiming for 15 or 20 percent. So in my opinion, it's going to require talking about these issues in far broader terms than these little, small, ad hoc solutions that are put on the table sometimes. Hi, Professor Rivera. Uh, many apologies. I have your book at home on the table, but I have not yet read it yet, so I apologize to everyone. I did buy it. <laughs> I apologize matters. to everyone if this is covered in the book, but it's a really fascinating topic for me. Um, in your research, as you looked at black Republicans throughout time, how did their political position impact their sense of racial identity, their treatment, and then how did they um, compensate for that? Did they build alternative communities, because as we know, oftentimes in communities of color, or minority communities, whatever, um, the definition of that thing, of who you are, goes with uh, the majority, right? And, and, and however much you vary away from the majority in terms of a belief, that also impacts your authenticity as a member of that community in some ways. So your blackness, if in my case, that's what I'm familiar with, your blackness is defined by how much you conform to what are considered to be black ideals, black beliefs um, within the community. So I can imagine that throughout time, from 36 to 80, as the black community migrated so dramatically away from the Republican um, Party that it was extremely lonely, as you mentioned, to be a black Republican, but not just because you're by yourself and couldn't um, uh, get your, uh, your ideas implemented, but also because from a racial and ethnic and community perspective that there could have been some rejection uh, involved there. So I'm just wondering, is that anything that you saw in your research and how did the, how was that addressed? And if it's a little bit of an offshoot, I apologize, but it's always so no, curious no, it's, and it's, interesting to me. It's actually, it's pretty important. Um, it's, it's actually part of a central argument that I make in the book. And I should also put out a plug for, I have an article coming out in Polity, um, spring summer edition, about pol racial politics and authenticity, right? So what happens when you deviate from the norm within racial communities. Um, 
So I should say, yes, it 100% affects African Americans in their kind of their racial identification. Um, they are constantly talking in, in all of these documents about being pulled between their political loyalties and their racial loyalties. Um, more specifically, however, we don't really see this emerge until 1964. And as, as Lisa mentioned, 1964 is like the turning point. It's uh, Jackie Robinson, who is the baseball player but is also a political activist, says in 1964, you know, we're not going to tolerate any more Uncle Toms who support figures like Barry Goldwater. You know, that is as putting it all on the line. And we really start to see the emergence of people being attacked for their political preferences in the early 1960s. And I, I really would argue that it comes out of this you know, support for Barry Goldwater and Goldwaterites, right? So how could you support somebody who voted against the 64 Civil Rights Act, right? The most progressive, comprehensive civil rights bill that the nation has ever seen. And you, you're sitting there, you know, you're, it, it, Barry Goldwater tells a story of, of having a black, um, a black choir perform at one of his, uh, at one of his rallies and they say they feel like they're on the plantation again. And they refuse to perform. Several of their, their members quit. Because there's just this kind of absolute visceral reaction to being associated with figures who, by all intents and purposes, even if it's you know, principled, have rejected the idea of civil rights for African Americans. Um, and so we really do start to see you know, um, this idea of, uh, I think a, a reporter called it Negro spotting, right? Where um, the black press actually engages in this kind of idea that it should be laughable for African Americans to be a part of the Republican Party. And so you really do see a lot of um, kind of personal memos, diaries, things like that, even um, uh, m uh, memos uh, and, and uh, journal entries um, and reports talking about feeling isolated and feeling cut off from their racial community, um, feeling like Benedict Arnold in blackface. Right? So, so we do see a lot of that. And I, I think that it has a profound effect um, in different ways on certain, on certain individuals. Some, I think on the extreme right, dig their heels in even further. Right? And they form their own community. The National Black Silent Majority, for example, forms around this idea of patrioti patriotism, loyalty, free enterprise, and individualism, right? So it's, it's very much in line with, right, they endorse Strom Thurmond and give him an award for his progressive politics. Um, for other people, like a figure like Ed Brock, it affects him in a way where he, when he gets into the Senate, he becomes more liberal. And he falls much more in line with policies that he feels will benefit African Americans and civil rights. So it does have a kind of a radical effect. And people form com do, uh, absolutely do form communities around that. Hi, uh, thanks so much for coming here, Leah. This is a fantastic talk. My name is Jason Anastasopoulos. I'm a uh, fellow here at the Ash Center. Um, and I'm, I've been very interested in these topics for a very long time. And I, I kind of had two questions, either for you or for the panel in general. The first one is that, as I understand it, uh, after the Civil War, the Republican Party had the loyalty of African Americans African Americans for quite a few decades after that, up until I think the turning point was 1936. And then after, uh, as you mentioned, the um, uh, kind of candidacy of Barry Goldwater, uh, really sh the, there was really, really a larger shift during that time. But I was wondering if you could kind of comment on a 
a kind of pivotal moment or issue that the Republican Party did not act upon in order to uh, retain the loyalties of the African-American constituency that they had had for such a long time. <laughs> um, and a, 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 another question that I had was, um, I was really curious to know, I mean, Democratic Party and Republican Party in many ways, although they're different now than they were before, they do have kind of, I feel like the uh, economic conservatism that's inherent in both parties, uh, inherent in the Republican Party and the kind of economic liberalism, the kind of willingness to use the state uh, to interfere in the economy and so on, which is part, part more of the Democratic Party's uh, economic platform, have been kind of continuous for quite a while. And so I was wondering to what extent the opposition of Republicans to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 uh, was a continuation of that economic conservatism or if there was, an, in fact, uh, more of a racial basis that the party was trying to sell. So I'll, I'll tackle the first and then I'll, I'll let uh, Congressman Davis maybe tackle the second or whichever one. Um, but so pivotal moment. Um, the, I think the easiest answer is race, civil rights, and economics. Right? So that's not such an easy answer. That's a huge answer. But there are a couple of different turning points. And in 1936, you know, um, African Americans aren't so much attached to the Democratic Party or Franklin Delano Roosevelt as they are attached to the idea of having a presidential figure who is addressing their economic issues, right? who, is, who is doing something for the nation. And it's not just African Americans who feel this way, right? This is the New Deal has cobbled together these, these very you know, strange bedfellows across multiple racial and class uh, groups. But I also think there's something there about the, the liberalism of the New Deal that allows for civil rights in very particular ways um, and allows for African Americans to be included in new ways. So, so the New Deal is not perfect, but you know, Eleanor Roosevelt being photographed with two black men on a train is certainly progressive. The black cabinet, even though they may be completely symbolic and have no voting power, is actually really important in terms of African Americans feeling as though they have some input into policy decisions at the federal level. So that's, that's one huge turning point, although even though on the local and state level, we still see Republican loyalties. Um, the other side of that is Truman in 1948 and civil rights. And so there's a split. This is just basic, a uh, little bit of basic history. There's a split where, where Southern Democrats break off from the Democratic Party in 1948, formed the you know, Dixocrat Party, segregation now, segregation forever, Strom Thurmond, um, which allows for the Democratic Party and Northern Democrats to really take advantage of you know, burgeoning alliances with African Americans who are migrating up from the South to the North. Right? So we do see a tremendous shift. And in 1948 is actually the first year that you see a shift in the number of African Americans to registered Democrats, right? Some of that is left over from previous years, but you actually have people going out, changing their political affiliation and saying, you know what? Truman may not be perfect, but he has included civil rights in such an aggressive way that I can appreciate that. And I think where the Republican Party falls, falls flat is they're still including civil rights on their platform but they're also being openly aggressive in their courting of white Southerners. And here's the thing. 
after 1948, you can't be gradual with civil rights. You just can't be. And so for either political party, I think, to say, well, African Americans, you need to be patient, right? Thurgood Marshall says, well, we've been patient since, you know, since we got to this country. So you can't, you, you, you can't have that debate. And I think the Republican Party really in many ways, and, and Ralph Bunch's report to the, to the Republican Party in the 1940s documents this, drops the ball in many respects. He gives them, he gives them over you know, 50 policies that they can enact to win back black voters. And the party says, oh, that's a little too aggressive for our tastes. Right? So, so that's, I think, a huge turning point. Yeah. You know, this is back to the war that I think is still going on inside conservatism today. There's a branch of conservatism that genuinely believes that we shouldn't do anything to help anybody. Now, they root that in some cases in a very strict reading of the Constitution. Uh, in some cases, they read that in a very strict reading of human nature. There are some folks on the political right who genuinely believe that our system is good enough that if you have a work ethic, you'll make it almost all the time. Um, there's another branch of conservatism that I was associated with the center right that does understand we have inequalities in American life, that they are structural, that we do have discrimination in American life, and that public policy has some obligation to mend those issues. That, I would submit, has been a war that's been going on in conservatism for at least the last 50 years. It will probably continue for the next 50, but as the far right or farther right side tends to win that argument in the context of today's politics, it's made any outreach to African Americans very challenging. Here's the reality, folks. Um, it is very hard to go to a voter and say, I want you to vote for me, and I make you the promise I will do nothing for you. That's kind of a hard sell, right? And, but that amounts to sort of what the strictest elements of conservatism are saying sometimes. Now, Two, two historical points. You ask about where the Republican Party really get it wrong, I'd give you two uh, in terms of how issues were managed. Southern Republicans had a huge opportunity in 1965 to join with Northern Republicans to support the Voting Rights Act, and in 1964 support the Civil Rights Act. Southern Republicans had a huge opportunity to paint the Democratic Party as the party of white resistance because that did accurately capture a lot of people like George Wallace at that time. George Wallace was a Democrat to the day he died. And the Republican Party had a huge opportunity, but the Republican Party made, I think, a very huge moral blunder and almost as big a strategic blunder by saying, well, let's look at the math. If we move to the left, if you will, maybe we'll get some black voters but if we move to the right, we really, really will get a lot of white voters. And politically, it's kind of paid off. You know, as someone who lives in Alabama now, I can tell you, essentially, if you tell me somebody's race, I'll tell you how they vote. Same for Mississippi, same for Louisiana. There are very few whites in those states who vote Democratic for president. And you can spot them. They all live in downtown condos or teach at universities. Um, so I think that this is a very real challenge. The other thing is, look, this is a challenge to both sides. I think African Americans and the political left in general 
do have to advance beyond thinking that if you don't like Barack Obama, you must be a racist. That's insulting one heck of a lot of folks. But it's also not realizing what a lot of white liberals say behind your back, frankly. Because a lot of them are very critical of Obama, too, but not as overt about it around black folks. But the second challenge is to conservatism. I've made this specific point to a lot of Republicans I know. When an African-American hears someone suggest that Obama can't give a speech without a teleprompter, or that Obama is really not that smart, or that Obama wouldn't have gotten where he was but for race, African-American professionals very quickly feel that's exactly what the guy down the hall says about me and my law firm or my professorship or my medical practice. These are very real sensitive issues to African-Americans challenging the competence of African-Americans who are ostensibly very competent. Too much of the argument against Barack Obama, in my opinion, has been competence-based. It would have been much smarter politics and more accurate for Republicans to say, no, the guy's really, really smart and really, really creative, but you know what? He hadn't figured out how to get the stuff done he wants to do. That would have been a political strand of argument that candidly even a lot of black folks would have agreed with. I am very eager to read this book, but haven't gotten to it yet. So my question is if Lisa raised the question of class, I want to raise the question of gender and of gender politics. We've talked a lot about civil rights and economic rights, but we've also talked a bit about how today's social conservatism in the black community is right around gay marriage, around abortion, and how the politics of gender and the politics of family are more central. And so I'm wondering if you see that as a more recent uh, shift or if that is a longer term trend, you're seeing that the politics of gender and of family and what families should look like and the roles for men and women in families, that a family should be a man and a woman, whether that's coming up in your research of black Republicans in a pre-1980 moment. Yes and no. Um, it doesn't, so, so issues that we might think of like a family and what defines a family and things like that really don't rise to the, front, the forefront of politics until the late 1970s, early 1980s. Um, and just, uh, just so you guys know, the way that I structured the book is that I took the topics and the issues that the vast majority of the subjects were discussing. And so this wasn't necessarily coming up in the way that we discuss it today. What was coming up um, were topics like family values, right? And so there's this really strong strain. In fact, I almost uh, uh, formed a chapter around it, but de decided against it, about family and how um, one of the pushes that, uh, that black Republicans are making throughout from 1930s onward is the idea of the black family and how do we salvage the black family. And this is one of the critiques that they have of New Deal liberalism and of great society liberalism, which they believe is destroying the family. So there's a real emphasis on what they call traditional family values, which I do think, in fact, translates um, quite nicely for some of these people once we start talking about traditional family values in terms of things like gay marriage or you know, traditional family, what defines a family, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the exception to that is that there are some figures who self-define as libertarians who fall into very different categories, right? So they are on the extreme right on almost everything 
except for issues that have to deal with privacy. And so for many of them, family values is something that falls under privacy. So you do see them come out and support things like gay marriage, right? Because they say, it's none of my business, and the federal government shouldn't be involved in this kind of business. Um, so it becomes a new division, a dividing line for these different camps within the Republican, uh, within the Republican Party. Um, one thing I did also want to mention is um, when we talk about everyday forms of conservatism, even though African-American women are the least likely of any group to vote Republican, and I, I mean, like, this is across everything, they're the most likely within African-American communities to be everyday conservatives. And so it's this, it, it creates this kind of, you know, interesting predicament, right? So they're the ones really who are talking about family values and things like, things of that nature. And in fact, for a lot of these big conservative organizations, like the National Black Silent Majority, they are really run um, uh, on the ground, in the grassroots, by black women, who then, right, so they're supporting these policies that are inherently like right-wing conservative. They're then going out and voting for Democratic candidates. So it's, it's really kind of a, it feels like cognitive dissonance, dissonance to, the, to us, but, you know, as Congressman uh, Davis was saying, this is, these are things that go hand in hand when you look at the, these institutions on the ground and these communities on the ground. So just to add to that, 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 that there is a way in which the, even, even though that conservative discourse, that social conservative discourse has a different bet, and you raise this in your book about, for example, law and order versus law and justice. And I found that distinction to be really useful to thinking about everyday conservatism within the black community and why there's a disconnect between that and the Republican Party. Because the idea that we want law and Justice is quite different than the idea of law and order. I, just, I don't know if you want to elaborate on that, but I, I thought that point was terrific. And it does suggest something about that difficulty of the Republican Party, again, even though there's a kind of everyday conservatism to reach out to the community, given the way it, it defines sort of its ideas about law and order and the way that appeals to white conservatives within the party. So. Right. Yeah, you know, let me, let me make a quick point on the social conservatism black community. Uh, since 1973, when Roe versus Wade came down, the most consistently pro-life group in the United States has been men over 65. The second most consistently pro-life group in the United States has been African Americans over 55. But I would venture to say not one Republican in this country has won an election by running pro-life in the black community. It's just not a voting issue. And I would say the same thing on gay marriage. Uh, the studies bear this out. Uh, you know, anecdotally, we have a hundred examples of this walking around. Some of you in this very room have seen this in your own families. But the surveys tell us that right now, the one group in America that most consistently, or the two groups that lag behind in their support of gay marriage are white Southerners, no surprise, but next is African Americans. Uh, Roughly only around 45% of African Americans describe themselves as pro-gay marriage. But having said that, I don't think you can find one Republican in America who can say that he or she has won an election by running on gay rights issues in the black community. Black voters draw a very real distinction between social conservatism and economic policy. Candidly, most black voters do not look to politicians to shape morality. They do look to politicians to shape 
economic policy, and Republicans run a risk. The debate in Indiana and Arkansas this week. Uh, you know what? Uh, you know. By the way, when I initially heard that a Harvard professor was writing a book about black Republicans, I thought it was like Governor Pence being the co-host on Ellen DeGeneres' show tomorrow or something. But, uh, uh, but here's the challenge: the conservatism that African Americans have around gay marriage, and it still exists and still very real. African Americans are still very skeptical and very much opposed to public accommodations, discrimination. This is a risk for the Republican Party in these religious liberty statutes. If the statutes verge into saying that you can deny service or business entry to people because of anything, however you fill in that blank, that is obviously going to touch some very visceral memories with African Americans. So I think Republicans would do, the Republican Party is not about to turn tomorrow into a party that formally endorses gay marriage, but it would be very smart to recognize that public accommodations issues are in a very special box for people of color. I kind of want to pick your brain a little bit about the new book that's coming out, because um, <laughs> my experience with politics has been 80s on obviously. Um, and so my question is this. It's something that I've been talking about a lot with my parents. Um, you have this sort of religious experience thing going on with Barack Obama, the audacity of hope, where his message almost has, not overtly, but sort of underneath the surface, there's almost a religious bent to his message, the same message that during slavery was very important to African Americans about the prospect of hope and equality and freedom versus the Republican Party in this era um, tends to spin things in a more negative way. I think the very recent example of this is Congresswoman Rogers posting on her Facebook page uh, for people to tell all the negative stories they've had about Obamacare and got 10,000 comments of people saying, well, my daughter has fibromyalgia and now she's covered because of Obamacare and it's awesome and stop being so negative. Um, so I wonder, you know, how much do you think the public Republican Party stands to gain by pivoting the packaging of their message, not necessarily changing their social policies, but trying to pivot to appeal more to voters who are sort of tired of those negative politics, particularly in the black community. Thank you. Um, my name is Brandon Terry. I am a assistant professor of African and African American Studies and Social Studies over at FAS. Uh, congrats, Leo, on the book. Um, sounds wonderful. I can't wait to read it uh, closely. Um, I have a couple of questions um, that are a, a bit more analytical uh, and I was curious, so a lot of the discussion has sort of proceeded uh, based on taking people at their word um, of, of how to understand their political programs, right? So we've sort of assumed in the conversation that when people are conservatives, that means they're against government, right? And they have this antipathy toward government. And so I was, I was gonna ask you firstly, um, how do you think about, in your work, the distinction between the sort of intellectual history, political history, and what, for lack of a better term, I'd call political sociology? So that at the same time that people say we have this antipathy toward government, we see the biggest increase in the carceral state in the history of the world, right? So we actually see an enormous expansion of federal government capacities at the same time that we have all of this rhetoric about we don't want that. We definitely do not want that. So, so if you could just speak a little bit about political sociology and intellectual history and conservative life. Um, and then two, two quick other things. So one is, 
I, again, I know more about the sort of post-80 period, but it seems to me that a lot of what drives negative opinions of Republican uh, leaders are that there are fringe figures or marginal figures. So in my lifetime, it's been folks like David Duke, Pat Buchanan, uh, people who just you know come out with essentially a white nationalist platform. And then there's obviously the corollaries against um, the, the gay and lesbian community as well. And, and so I was thinking, part of it is about that you don't see the real mainstream leadership condemn those people, right? And, and I was wondering, in this earlier period, do you see a similar sort of thing um, because I didn't hear any of that come up. And if there are figures that are sort of marginal but really drive uh, African Americans away from the Republican Party and that are real flashpoints in their, in their thing. And, and lastly, uh, another thing that we, we talked a little bit about is, but we didn't quite name it, is black nationalism. Um, and so a lot of the family stuff overlaps with long traditions of black nationalism. A lot of the concern with how do we get the existing political parties to compete over our votes is the central platform of the national black conventions in the 1970s, right, and all the black nationalist efforts. And so I was just wondering if you could say a little bit more about your sense of the, of the relationship and tension between black Republicans and black nationalists um, in, in that period. One burning question, quickly. So this is mostly for you, Congressman Davis. Um, I, I really want to know what kind of changed in your politic from 2008 speaking at for Obama's um, national convention to 2012 speaking for um, Mitt Romney. In, in addition to that, also, like, how can the Republican Party stop um, this huge um, swing to becoming um, a party that's so conservative that a lot of people that you all outlined from Brooks to Nixon to Reagan would be lost in this political party? Um, so I'll answer the question about um, the, the pivoting, right, from, from negative talk and things like that. Th this has been a, a huge problem for the Republican Party for a generation, right? So Ed Brooke in 1964 says, we, we can't be the party of negatives. We have to be, you know, we have to have forward-thinking solutions. This is part of his idea of progressive conservatism. We need to have a form of conservatism that puts forward policies that actually do for the people. And so I think that that's huge. If the Republican Party could do that today, you know, and, and, and pivot from this idea of, you know, we are against everything, or at least appearing like we are against everything, to actually putting forward programs, policies, initiatives that take into account people's realities on the ground, yes, they could get black voters. They could also get Latino voters. They could get Asian voters. They could get gay and lesbian voters. Um, and what we, do, what we are seeing, I think, a little bit, are some candidates who are attempting to do that. Right? So Rand Paul, for all his faults, um, and, and for all his stumbles, is trying to do that. Right? So he started with the Howard University speech two years ago, which was a disaster. But since then, he's been doing some work on the ground. Right? So having focus groups, hiring, all, hiring um, black people to work on his staff, firing the racists on his staff, right? So, so trying to move forward so it doesn't look like Johnny come lately, but instead like somebody who is actually invested in black lives and minority lives. Right? And, and there's still some struggles there, but I think that's the kind of forward thinking 
um, or at least a start to the kind of forward thinking that you need to actually see an indent in, in uh, policies. Um, so then, uh, and, and I will say one other thing. So one of, one of the things I came across in the book is there was a lot of stuff on Donald Rumsfeld and civil rights, which initially surprised me because if you know who Donald Rumsfeld is, it feels like he's the antithesis of civil rights and civil liberties, right? Especially with all the torture stuff. Um, but one of the things that he does in the 60s is as Republicans are really fighting over this with Democrats over the 1965 Voting Rights Act, is he decides that he's going to go out and produce his own version of the Voting Rights Act, which when you take a look at it, um, it has its problems, but it's actually much more progressive than the actual act that is passed. So it has a lot of shortcomings, has a whole lot of shortcomings. But here's an example of somebody who we think of today as, as you know, the opposite of progressive, um, actually trying to do some work on the ground. And, and Jeff Caber Service has a, has a really wonderful essay um, on the efforts that, that some Republicans put forward in terms of policy decisions on matters of civil rights. Um, you know what, Brynn, I'm, I'm going to try and answer the, the fringe figures one, because I think that's the easiest one to start with. I like to say, and I say in the book, that the Republican Party is always judged by the worst element within their party. And, and that is, when you're trying to make up a difference and when you're trying to win back people, that's just, that's just the fact of the matter. You're going to be judged by the worst element. So there are tons of fringe, fringe figures, including Barry Goldwater at the time, who really come out and who do, tremendous is the wrong word, but I'm going to use it, a tremendous job of driving away African Americans. Um, I think you see it with Strom Thurmond. You see it with other people coming to the party. Um, and interestingly enough, Barry Goldwater has an experience where he's running and he says, you know, I am not a racist. I've, I've joined the NAACP. I've, I've desegregated my department store, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but then refuses to denounce the KKK when they come out and endorse him. And later on, he writes in his autobiography, he goes, that was a mistake. Right? <laughs> that, that, that was a mistake. And he says, when conversations and private conversations with Jackie Robinson, I really had to go through the experience of, you know, uh, of interacting and talking to African Americans to actually realize what I was doing. So it didn't matter that, you know, when I opposed the 64 Civil Rights Act that I did it on my principled grounds. Unfortunately, the way that it looked to minority communities is this guy is a racist, right? And he's not denouncing the racists that are saying racist things. So I, so I do think that, that there is a truism there about the Republican Party is going to be judged by its worst element, and that remains true today, right? We might say, people within the Republican Party might say Rush Limbaugh is not a real Republican, but he still is going to have an impact on how African Americans view or distrust the modern day GOP. And so there really does have to be some kind of forceful, loud denouncement of those kind of politics in order to even kind of regain trust within black communities. Um, your last question about black nationalism and, and this kind of tension between the two, even though they have overlapping goals, you know, George Schuyler says in, a, in an interview with Malcolm X, you and I are not so different. Malcolm X is kind of like, ah, we're, we're actually really different. And he says, no, no, if you get down to the, to the nitty gritty of things, we are really not that different. 
I like this idea of self-determination. I like this idea of respectability politics. And he gives this laundry list of ways that they're alike. And, you know, and then Malcolm X gives a laundry list of ways that they're not alike. But I think it's a nice story for, for explaining why so many black nationalists actually find themselves attracted to conservatism and to eventually to the Republican Party. There's, for many of them, there's kind of a seamless transition where later on in life they become conservative. You know, Floyd McKissick, who um, heads up um, CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality in the 1960s, actually campaigns for Richard Nixon and in return get gets an a exorbitant amount of money for Soul City in, in North Carolina. Right? We see a number of black preachers come out, um, you know, in uh, Ralph Abernathy, Zion Williams, um, and campaign for Ronald Reagan in 1980, after he does his Philadelphia, Mississippi speech, right, the site where three civil rights workers have been murdered 16 years earlier. So knowing all that, they still come out and they endorse Ronald Reagan. Whether or not they're actually doing it for ideological reasons or for opportunistic reasons, we don't really know. Maybe that speaks to your sociological question. but. There, there is a very interesting way in which black nationalists don't have a difficult time transitioning into conservatism. Briefly, I just want to make a couple of, couple of points. One is related to your question of definition, but the first one is just about the way we talk about often uh, the Republican Party and conservatism as if the two represent one and the same. And I just want to say that is something which is a legacy of relatively recent years, particularly the party since 1980, but building since 64. The party is far more disciplined programmatically and can be defined more or less, however we want to define conservatism, as, as kind of a conservative party at its heart and core. In the earlier period, it was far more capacious, less disciplined. In the same way, the Democratic Party had a core of very, very conservative white Democrats. The Republican Party had Lindsey, had Brooke, had others who might have thought of themselves as Republican, but as cons relatively conservative, but a far more moderate conservatism and a far more programs that were close, close to the Democratic Party. So I just want to be careful about we have almost two different parties. Um, there, it's, the party has shifted sharply, especially since 1980. So that's one point. The second one is on the issue of definition. I think it's extremely important. We have been taking a notion of conservatism and defining it in the way that conservatives like to define themselves. In favor of free markets, in favor of small government, in favor of individual initiative, and anti-communist, let's say. Maybe, you know, we can add other things, but that's sort of a couple of rubrics. What's really important to remember is that that self-definition belies a reality, a political reality. Conservatives embrace a notion of free markets, but favor free markets for business deregulation, by and large, while they're very comfortable for this utilizing the state both, A, obviously for defense, right? but B, for law and order. So conservatives have always embraced, and that's part of a conservative philosophy, law, except for these kind of small relatively small segment of libertarians who are in favor actually of dismantling this huge carceral state. But by and large, conservatives are really comfortable with a law and order state. And it's actually around that appeal of law and order that the Republican Party, despite not answering all its calls for the social of its social base for things like right to life, et cetera, has managed to appeal to those white conservative voters around this law and order issue. Um, while maintaining its it, in being in favor of deregulation on economic terms in other ways. So I think what has to be really careful, conservatives are not, there's no principled conservatism in the way they like to define it. They are largely in, uh, opposed to 
using the state for redistribution downward and more equitably, redistributing power downward and more equitably in society is one of the ways I would define what a conservative Republican is rather than simply in favor of small government. Three points in 60 seconds. To your point, uh, politics, if it's going to be successful at the national level, must be aspirational. The successful conservatives like Reagan figured out how to be aspirational and to link their, their vision to a notion that America's best days were ahead uh, and to appeal to core American values. The least successful conservatives paint a very pessimistic picture of the United States of America at any given time. It just doesn't wash with a lot of people. Uh, to your question, uh, I'm going to shamelessly steal from Nelson Rockefeller. Nelson Rockefeller was once asked, well, Governor, uh, you're a guy who seems to have all these ideas that are very progressive and moderate. Why are you in the Republican Party and not the Democratic Party? Nelson Rockefeller famously said, I'd rather be in a party where I'm saying, move, 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 than in one where I'm saying, stop, 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 slow down. That's kind of where I got to a few years ago. Let me relate this to my last point. Both political parties in America, and this needs to be said as we leave here today, both political parties, both philosophies, liberalism and conservatism, have done a very poor job of addressing many of the conditions in American life. Your proof of that is to walk in the inner city and to walk in the hamlets of rural poverty in this country and you will see a collective failure of politics and economics to make people's lives better. I think that we've got to challenge both parties. We've got to challenge liberalism to think in hard programmatic ways about how to make their policies work better and how to build more durable support for them. We've got to challenge conservatives to actually care about having policies in many of these arenas. And we've got to press both parties and say, the proof of your failure of imagination is in the conditions of a lot of people in this country who are of color, who are struggling day in and day out, who've heard the speeches from both sides and have yet to see their lives turn around. There are a lot of people of color in the United States of America who live in neighborhoods that are recovery proof. Their economic conditions look the same today as they did in 2009. There are a lot of young people in American life today who appear to be beyond the reach of any successful initiative or program to turn their lives around. That ought to push conservatives and liberals to do better. And on that cheery note, <laughs> um, let me thank all of you for coming and staying, and then above all to thank our three panelists for having uh, participated in a very lively conversation of a type and, on, and touching on subjects that I think ought to be aired much more frequently in this institution. But thank you to... Uh, <laughs>